Exocast. 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 Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Andrew Rushby, and as always, I'm joined by Hugh Osborne and Hannah Wakeford. In this episode of Exocast, we're going to cover a few of the month's most interesting papers. Uh, we've each focused on a single interesting development that caught our eye. I say each. I've usual broken that trend. But I think Hannah's going to be talking about preliminary looks from JWST data. Hugh is going to cover an Earth-sized planet observed by JWST. And I will discuss some recent work on the astrobiological potential of hydrothermal vent systems. But let's start off with, uh, with Hugh. Sure, yes. I'm going to be chatting about a paper called A JWST Transmission Spectrum of a Nearby Earth-Sized Planet, which is by Jacob Lustig-Jäger and co-authors, which I think includes our very own Hannah Wakeford here. Is that right, Hannah? I believe so. <laughs> so you can probably give me, or tell me if I'm wrong when I summarise this paper. But uh, the reason I kind of wanted to cover this paper is because I saw it covered in some media um, as being JWST finds its first exoplanet. And um, no, not not really, <laughs> not, not at all, I think. Uh, another beautiful case where the media gets everything right. Yeah. Yes. I guess cover a little bit about why that's not the case. But yeah, so the, the nearby Earth-sized exoplanet is called LHS-475b, and it's also known as TOI-910, which is, gives you a hint about its origin, because that means it was a test object of interest or a test candidate planet that was found by the, the NASA's test mission a couple of years ago now, actually. And so it's this little terrestrial-sized planet, so almost precisely one Earth radius, which orbits a nearby M dwarf every two days. So it's kind of... One of, one of the closest M-dwarfs to have found a, a transiting planet, only 12 parsec away. So it's not quite proxima distance, but it's still among the closest transiting M-dwarf planets known. So although it is an Earth-sized planet, it's definitely not an Earth-like planet being you know, far hotter than the Earth and orbiting a much smaller star in, in a much quicker orbital period of only two days. So as well as the test data, there are also 12 ground-based light curves of this, a bunch of Im imaging observations, all spurred by the candidate that was found from TESS, all of which are consistent with it being a, a very likely planet around an M-dwarf. Surprisingly, there's no mass yet for this planet, so it's only got a radius, but that's also assumed to be Earth-like. So JWST observed this planet twice, so it was able to capture two of these very short 40-minute transits with uh, the near-spec G395H instruments, and that's kind of the go-to exoplanet mode simply because it's a high-resolution mode in the infrared. I think it's the most used mode on exoplanetary transmission spectra. And this is actually the first data we have released from JWST for a truly Earth-sized planet. So this is the first time we've got any data for something that's terrestrial in, in nature. It's also the first time that we have, uh, I think, a JWST observation which is perfectly flat. So it, there doesn't seem to be any hint of a thick atmosphere around this planet, even down to weakly disfavoring Earth-like atmospheres, which is astoundingly precise from only four hours of JWST observations. Although I guess I'm not particularly surprised that low-mass planets are close to often tempestuous M-dwarf stars end up as these bare, airless rocks, or at least with very like thin atmospheres, simply because they're high temperature and, and lots of of UV radiation is very likely to have removed any atmosphere that might have been present. But it's certainly the first very clear evidence that this might be the norm, that these hot Earth-like planets may not have atmospheres. Measurable atmospheres, I think, is really key here. Measurable. Because yes. we, you know, it hasn't been ruled out that this is a bare 
rock entirely and that requires a lot more precision on the light curves themselves and being able to attain a little bit more information so it's a first step again with trying to figure out the question do these planets have an atmosphere and in doing so ruling out various large extended atmospheres is, is in that kind of flowchart in that process yes exactly yeah i, I mean so they were able to certainly rule out an extended atmosphere with any quantity of hydrogen helium in it, which would give you a much thicker, much, much more observable atmosphere. And yes, so an Earth-like atmosphere is only, isn't quite ruled out yet, but almost. I think one of the cool things is that when you have a planet like WASP-39, where there's lots of atmospheric features, you, you're not sure what, whether what you're seeing in your data is because of there's uh, an atmospheric feature there that you don't know about, or if you're seeing some systematic in the JWST spectrum. But in this case, because we have what is very likely a flat spectrum, you can actually use that to see how well JWST is performing you know, in terms of its spectra. And actually, they find a remarkable precision of something like 5 ppm as the noise floor, which is way lower than that was expected pre-launch. And it shows just how capable and how amazing we're going to get in terms of JWST atmospheres in the near future. But coming back to JWST finds its first exoplanet. So this wasn't even a discovery paper, really. Uh, it doesn't present any of the data that was actually used to find the candidate. It doesn't provide any specific evidence either that the signal that is a planet. I mean, having a JWST spectrum uh, without any sign of, of an atmosphere is is a clear tick in the box of saying very likely an Earth-like planet or an Earth-sized planet. But they don't actually present any evidence for that. And the reason is that there is a discovery paper, which is also being prepared right now, which hasn't been released yet. So so I think that's the, the paper which will discover the planet and JWST is characterizing it. So um, the, me the media outlets who published this as JWST detecting the paper uh, put a little bit the, the cart in front of the horse in that respect. But I think it's certainly a very interesting... I think, well, one of the reasons, of course, is that the timescale right now for JWST papers is very, very short because everyone wants to rush and push out their new data. And of course, the timescale for a detection paper might not necessarily match that. So that's why we're seeing... We saw this paper come out before the planet was officially confirmed. But it's certainly an extremely interesting look into what JWST can do for these small planets, especially around M dwarfs. And I'm sure, well, you know, with more spectra, maybe we'll start seeing uh, features in these kind of planets. Uh, and, you know, this is the, the precision that JWST is finding is really the key thing about this paper, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's not the first time that we've seen space telescopes that are traditionally more characterization missions. So trying to understand more details about planetary atmospheres, perhaps, has, you know, followed up an unconfirmed planet before. This is the first one with JWST, which is really exciting. We will also see a number of these kinds of observations for directly imaged planets, you know, confirming the presence of directly imaged planets with JWST while simultaneously characterizing them. So I think it is part of the goal of the telescope itself to be able to do this kind of confirmation, which is what this this study is rather than a direct detection of the planet it's a confirmation of the planet and you can see that in terms of the event the transit event happening at an expected time over the course of the observations but also the shape of it it's a very box-like transit event so you've got a, a very flat bottom to the transit which suggests it's a planet rather than another star going in front of it and the depth of it suggests that it's a small planet so there's a number of things that really match with the expectations of this candidate and then of course as Hugh says there's there's going to be more of official discovery paper which is confirming the planet with radial velocities and follow-up from the ground-based telescopes 
but there's always been potential for these space-based telescopes to confirm the presence of these objects and understand more about what their characteristics are. Exocast. So over to Hannah for her rundown of interesting result from this month. What have you got for us? Yeah, so I thought I'd just talk a little bit about some of the preliminary work that's been coming out of JWST, because as you said, there's been a number of papers that are going up very, very quickly. And most of these are going up before they've been officially reviewed. And some of them are actually going up as what we would call a white paper, which is a paper submitted by a collection of the community to inform the rest of the community as to how instruments work or, or a particular topic. And one of these white papers that has really come out was before what we call the cycle two deadline for JWST. So every single year we will be proposing to put scientific studies on JWST and ask it to make observations. And those are done such that the community writes different proposals saying, I want to do this. That then goes to a panel of people that then select which ones actually happen. But in order for the community to be as prepared for that and to be able to ask the right questions or know whether or not the observations they're planning are going to work or not, they need information. And we just didn't have time to have peer-reviewed information out there. So a number of members of the community have put forward these papers which are looking at the performance of JWST in different situations and saying, listen, you can do, we've done this, so we show that you can get this amount of noise for this amount of time. And we think it's possible that whatever observation you're planning, if it's within these kind of parameters, will work really nicely because, hey, look, we've done it and we can show that to you. So there were a couple of these papers that came out in January before the deadline of January 27th. Horrible putting it over the Christmas break, by the way. Not cool space telescope. A stressful time for everyone. I saw on my various social media channels a lot of very stressed out astronomers. Yeah, exactly. So two of these papers were looking specifically at phase curve observations. So the phase curve is watching the planet as it does a full orbit around its star. These planets are often, and and because of the time it takes to do these observations, tidally locked. So they have orbital periods of around a day, um, probably no more than two days, because that would mean that you have to observe it for a really long time. So these are observations that last a long time to observe the day side as it rotates into view before the planet passes behind the star, and then as the night side rotates into view before it transits the star. So these are looking at the full orbit of the planet. And two papers were put out there for the community to look at. One was on the hot, ultra-hot Jupiter, WASP-121b. This was done with that near-spec instrument that Hugh mentioned. Near-spec is the most popular of the instruments on JWST for transiting exoplanets. And this observation actually lasted 30.6 hours. So a continuous observation with JWST pointing at a target for 30.6 hours. This is in itself remarkable. And the paper is actually showing the community that this is possible and looks at what precision you can get with that instrument. So near spec, the 395H mode that we're talking about here spreads the light over two different detectors. Those two different detectors have different properties. So they, they affect the light in different ways. So what they were quoting is that we get 30 parts per million per hour, 
which is tiny on nearest one, so the first detector. On the second detector, it's even better, 10 parts per million per hour. So again, reaching and looking at those noise floors of the instruments, it, it's a telescope that is performing remarkably over very, very long periods of time, 30 plus hours here. So that's showing you that near-spec is a really nice stable instrument for phase curve observations. So measuring the emission spectrum from the planet, they were able to get down to seven to nine parts per million, which is just absolutely insane. And, you know, being able to measure the night side as well of the planet. And we can look at from these phase curves of observations, actually the night side flux itself. So how this really dark part of the planet is still emitting thermal radiation and they're getting kind of numbers on that to try and understand what the temperature of the planet and how heat is circulated around that planet. The other phase curve observation that was published in one of these white papers was on WASP-43b. This is kind of like a typical hot Jupiter, a bit more massive, a bit more heavy than most hot Jupiters, so its gravity is quite strong. So we haven't really seen its atmosphere in transmission very much before, but it has got a number of measured phase curves before from the Hubble Space Telescope, Spitzer Space Telescope. And this is part of the early release science JWST Transiting Exoplanet Community Program. And they observed this planet with the MIRI instrument, the mid-infrared instrument on JWST using the low resolution spectrograph. And that observation was over 24 hours long. It was actually 26 and a half hours in total with over 9,000 integrations. So 9,000 images taken over the course of those 26 and a half hours. For some observations that are much shorter, that's a very small number, but there are a number of different things that determine how many of those pictures you're gonna be taking over the time period. And from those observations with MIRI, on this phase curve, they were also able to show that the telescope is outperforming what was expected, but that the MIRI instrument does have a couple of quirks that we're gonna to have to deal with along the way. So there is a very strange ramp effect which changes direction. It either ramps upwards or downwards, depending on which part of the detector you're looking at. And these ramps are systematics imprinted on the information from the planetary systems, from the detectors and telescopes themselves. In this case, the MIRI detector has these kind of little quirks that we've seen previously with telescopes like Spitzer. They're from the same architecture, they're from the same kind of detector characteristics, so we're going to be able to use that information to help us understand more about it. So we've got two very kind of similar long-term observations that have been done. They are both beautiful and precise, but we've got different kind of systematics that we're seeing across, again, the two detectors on NIRSPEC and then the very different detector of MIRI introducing these other things we've got to deal with. So the beautiful thing, and I'll just sum it up here as to why I want to highlight this, is that putting information out into the community is really a key part of what we're doing with this really quick turnaround with JWST. This is a rapid fire learning curve for everybody. And we want to make sure that the science questions that are being answered are as big and broad as possible. And for that, we need to know exactly how this telescope works. So we've got two really nice papers on phase curve observations, long-term observations with two very different instruments, two very popular instruments for exoplanet science. 
And how can we use that? How can we learn from those in the best way possible? Fantastic summary of a couple of very useful papers for upcoming observations. If anyone's planning on submitting anything for the next cycle, they really need to be familiar with these with these papers, right? Yeah, it, it really is very helpful to kind of be able to say, you know, we want to do this and we know that we can do it because mm-hmm. of this. Uh, and that's really the key. We want to get this precision on our emission spectrum and of our phase curve. Okay, well, what precedent have you got for that? Here's the precedent. Yeah, especially given something like a third of all of the proposals submitted in cycle two were for exoplanets, which is crazy. I know. So, it's um, uh, absolutely remarkable. How the exoplanet community really rallied. We, we went from 25% in cycle one to something like 34% of observations. We are 17 hours shy of the proposal time requested by the galaxy's people. So we've got We've got a very small smidge of a way to go there before we dominate, but uh, it's it's really amazing to see. It just sounds like, you know, an integrated, uh, diverse scientific community working together to allocate time fairly and democratically on a very popular instrument. But yeah, more exoplanet science, please. Thanks. Exocast. What about you, Andrew? As our resident astrobiologist, you get to take us away and change tax a little bit. So what have you got for us? Yeah, perhaps bring us back to Earth slightly. But of course, everything here is relevant for exoplanet astrobiology as well. But for my new segment, I've decided to start off our you know, new year after our break here by breaking the rules completely and briefly discussing three papers. Yes, three. I'm sorry about this. Two of them are very closely connected. I'm going to be very brief with them anyway. Um, but they're all about the general topic of uh, serpentinization as a possible source of energy for microbial metabolisms around hydrothermal vent systems. So quite a lot to unpack there. Serpentinization, if you're not familiar with that term, is a geological process involving low temperature reactions between water and volcanic rocks, igneous rocks. This produces a very small amount of hydrogen and turns those those rocks into serpentinite. But this hydrogen is super useful, generally associated with hydrothermal vent systems. Hydrothermal vent systems themselves are geological structures that form around fissures in the oceanic crust and geothermally heated, lots of mineral rich water is discharged out of them. And they are very, very interesting from an astrobiological perspective, because one, they, you know, they are supported or the ecosystems that exist around those structures are supported by chemosynthesizing primary producers. They do not rely on photosynthesis. So when this was first discovered in the late 1970s around the lost city hydrothermal field, this was you know, revolutionary because it expands the parameter space of, of habitability, not just on life, but everywhere beyond the photic zone, but beyond the idea that you need some photosynthesis as your, as your primary producer. And two, these might be the structures or analogous structures where life on Earth might have first originated. So very interesting structures to study. And, you know, we need, you know, we need a source of energy for life. We need some sort of carbon if we're thinking about carbon based life and we need water and the the source of energy here is going to be this hydrogen that's released from the serpentinization reaction. So in this case, we think about certain kinds of microbiota called methanogens, which are a type of archaea that produce methane as a byproduct of this serpentinization reaction, as well as acetogens, which are the bacteria that produce acetate as a byproduct of this serpentinization reaction. So we're focusing primarily on the 
mutagens in these couple of papers here. And these are considered to possibly be the earliest metabolisms, or at least analogous with the earliest metabolisms and ecologies of life on Earth. So again, they've got the hydrothermal vents, you've got these acetogenic communities, very, very interesting, very interesting structures. Additionally, serpentinization is interesting from an astrobiological perspective because it's proposed as the source of seasonal pulses of methane on Mars, for example, that were dis discovered by the Curiosity rover, as well as a possible source of energy through hydrogen release for life that might exist in the subsurface oceans of the icy moons of Europa or at Enceladus or Callisto out in the outer solar system. So introduction over, let's get into the papers. The first paper is called A Diverse Geochemical Conditions for Prebiotic Chemistry in Shallow Sea Alkaline Hydrothermal Vents, and it's by uh, Laurie Barge and Roy Price, and it's published in Nature Geoscience this month, and it describes actually the, the prony hydrothermal field in southern New Caledonia. This is a really interesting field because it's a unique ultramafic vent, so again it has this, uh, this volcanic rock that we want, but it's uniquely in a shallow sea setting. So many hydrothermal vents are deep sea, well beyond the photic zone. This is interesting in that it's actually in a shallow sea setting. The vent is, you know, discharging this serpentinization-produced hydrothermal fluids, lots of warm water, very alkaline, and containing lots of hydrogen and methane, relatively at least. The methane is likely microbial in origin based on clumped isotope analysis. So we know that there's an ecosystem operating here that might be analogous with that, that could be happening on the, on the early Earth. So the most interesting feature of this field, as I said, is that it's alternatively submerged and exposed by tides. It's in this shallow sea area, which presents a new type of hybrid serpentinite-hosted hydrothermal system that you know might give us a pause for thought about where maybe life emerged on the early Earth. This setting might plausibly have existed in the Archean if volcanic islands were present, as shallow sea vents could have formed there as well. And in fact, during the Archean, it's likely that there would be a lot of volcanic islands around, with a greater tendency to remain exposed due to seafloor shallowing induced by higher internal heating. So an interesting, interesting environment as well. Additionally, you get another favourable characteristics um, for, for prebiotic chemistry in these environments, such as wet-dry cycling, lots of temperature variations, influx of seawater and then freshwater, nutrient cycling from the land, waves and storms agitating the environment, exposure to light. All of these things sound disruptive, but generally we found that environments that are dynamic like this are usually pretty good for life. So maybe all of these things are, are leading us towards re-evaluating the potential of these like interesting hybrid vent systems. So, to support the findings of this paper, there's two connected papers I'm going to mention very briefly now, also looking at a, a single serpentinizing system in Oman. So the first of these two papers is entitled Deep Branching Acetogens in Serpentinized Subsurface Fluids of Oman, and it's published in PNAS this month it's by Daniel Coleman and others, and it provides an insight into acetogen ecology within contemporary serpentinides, because we really don't know that much about them, if we're honest. So the authors identify two types of acetogen, of the phylum acetothermia, we should tell you a little bit about where they like to live, based on adaptations to specific environments within the hydrothermal vent system itself. So you have different spatiotemporal distributions for these two different types of acetogenic communities. So these organisms are among probably the earliest evolving bacterial lineages discovered to date, which again, very interesting for the origin of life and potential for life elsewhere. But a quick summary, the type 1 acetothermia here exists in these less... I guess, lesser pentanized waters, whereas the type 2 are found in fluids with higher rock water reactions, i.e. more serpentinized, if you will, like the prony hydrothermal field mentioned earlier. And according to the Earth, authors are likely to be the dominant autotrophs in serpentinizing and, uh, and hyperalkaline subsurface fluids. 
So these are crucially the, you know, the earliest possible analogues, perhaps, of early evolving acetogens, representing the bacteriological innovations and physiological traits that might have allowed the earliest forms of life to thrive and extract energy from this kind of environment. So there might be a window into those, those earliest metabolisms, which I think is very cool. And the third paper, which is closely connected to the second, <laughs> uh, is called Microbial Biosignature Preservation in Carbonated Serpentine from the Samile Ophiolite in Oman. And this appears in Nature Comms this month from John Lima Salumas and others. So this is less about the ecology of those environments and more about the preservation of biosignatures within the serpentinites that result. So the paper reports a detection of biosignatures preserved in iron oxide precipitates from drill cores from this particular ophiolite. And you, we see potentially two varieties of structures that were identified. The first one's probably microbial. The second one are called dubio fossils, which again should give you an insight into the fact that they're probably not <laughs> fossils. <laughs> but the argument here is that it's not just for the habitability of the serpentinized hydrothermal fluids, building on the points that Ivor mentioned, but also their potential to preserve the fossil evidence of microbial life. Life. This unique preservation potential comes from the fact that there's a propensity for carbonate precipitation among active and ancient serpentinized ultramafic deposits, such as the prony field, and this might capture and preserve a variety of fossil and chemical biosignatures throughout Earth's history, which we know about, but also suggesting that we could then look for these mineral deposits as possible targets to search for microbial remains beyond Earth, for example, on Mars or elsewhere. So taken together, I, I think these three papers paint a very optimistic and quite exciting picture of astrobiological potential of hydrothermal vent systems, mm. which we knew about anyway. I guess we're just learning a little bit more, particularly about the acetogens. Not to just support perhaps the earliest known life on Earth, but to pres preserve biosignatures and microfossils, uh, perhaps further afield as well. Got a lot of terms in there that I need to Google, but these hydrothermal vents, they really have been thought of for a while now right, as these origin points for life and, and the emergence of different ways for life to consume energy. And there are sites around the and around the world, but it sounds like from these papers that this this site in Oman is, is really key. Yeah, I think that was just a maybe an access issue, right? Mm. Easy to, to sample those particular precipitates. But then the prony field is an active serpentinizing field at the moment, which then provides that very interesting hybrid hybrid environment. Because you're right, I mean, it's often thought about as an origin of life mm. spot. Um, but generally in the deep sea, we're thinking subsurface, um, you know, very deep subsurface environments, less of the shallow sea because of the exposure to UV radiation, which in the Archean would have been pretty extreme. But who knows, right, with this potential wetting and drying, you know, even a couple of metres of water, which is still within the photex zone, might result in some protection. I don't know, it just, it, it's, it makes sense, right, for less likely to be one mm. extreme. It's, you know, it might it may well be a deep, three, deep sea hydrothermal vent, it may well be a shallow sea environment, but why not a vent in a shallow sea environment, for example? Um, it's not something that I I've thought about too much. But if, again, just the fact that we don't really know anything about these acetogens. I'm trying to do some modelling of the, the you know, methanogenic communities back in the Archean. Very difficult because there's just not that much known about how they live, uh, their various energy requirements and their sensitivities. And a lot of this was, uh, maybe I didn't stress it enough, but a lot of it was novel. You know, finding, you know, those two different types of acetogen not done before, identifying that there might be spatiotemporal distributions between those communities within the same vent. I think that was pretty novel as well. So still a lot to learn about these environments, but all of the, everything we learn suggests even more likely to perhaps be an origin of life uh, kind of environment. Awesome. I guess, would that push us towards thinking Mars might be more likely to form life than Europa? Because obviously shallow seas 
it's more likely a Martian environment than than a deep kind of under ice sea that we find in in Europa. Yeah, very true. Yeah, we're more likely to have those like prony analog hydrothermal fields in Mars, for example, than we might in the deep deep subsurface hydrothermal vents of Europa. But again. Maybe uh, d- different environments, different pressures, pros and cons uh, on both sides. You get the radiation protection in uh, you know, hundreds of tens of kilometers beneath the shell in the outer solar system. So I think, yeah, pros and cons and lots more work to be done uh, in this. But bringing things back to Earth, you know, actual samples here on Earth uh, for, for a change. Great. Very interesting paper, Andrew. And I think with that, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up our news section for another month. Don't forget to look out for our other episode this month where we chat with astronomer Georgina Dransfield about observing exoplanets from Dome C in Antarctica. Let us know what you think about the show through Twitter, exo underscore cast, or on our website, exocast.org, where you'll find all of our previous shows as well. You can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com slash exocast. A big thank you to all our past donors, without whom we can't really keep the show running. So yeah, thanks again. You can get your hands on some Exocast merchandise, t-shirts, stickers and more at exocast.threadless.com. Exocast is edited by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, KOPS Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck University of London in the UK. Our podcast is edited by Fergus Hall and made possible through your donations. Find out more at exocast.org.